Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. Congratulations goes out to Mikhail Alabanko from Slovakia for winning Jack Schwager's book, Market Wizards. To be in with a chance to win other prizes, please visit economicrockstar.com and on the right-hand side of the homepage, you can sign up and subscribe to Economic Rockstar. You'll be automatically entered into any future competition, so join us on economicrockstar.com. You are an economic rockstar. But China has many problems and is in the kind of the midst of a a long-term secular economic downswing, I think, in terms of growth. And everywhere, including China, of course, people are focused now on reform. And we have to kind of decide whether reform is hope or hype. In many cases, it's it's hype. I'm reluctant to say this because I was always a great euro file, to be honest. But I think the chances of the integrity of this euro area as it is... I think uh, the chances of that surviving are very, very slim. Hi, Frank Conway here, and you're listening to Economic Rockstar. I'm truly excited to have George Magnus join us today. Hi, George. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. George Magnus is an independent economist, consultant and commentator. He has a distinguished career that started with some teaching assignments, but was spent mostly in the financial services industry. Before going solo in 2012, George was the senior economic advisor at UBS Investment Bank, having previously been the chief economist for 10 years. In almost 30 years of work experience in the city, he has held senior positions at S.G. Warburg, Chase Manhattan Bank and Bank of America. He's a well-known and highly regarded economist in the financial community and has won many accolades and professional surveys as one of the top global economists. George is well known for his commentaries and interviews in newspapers, journals, TV and radio, most notably for the Financial Times, CNBC and Bloomberg. George gained widespread acclaim for declaring in early 2007 that we would face a Minsky moment or systematic banking crisis and a decade of slow growth, has extensive experience of writing on, explaining and speaking about the global economy. His first book, The Age of Aging, How Demographics Are Changing the Global Economy and Our World, was published in 2008, followed by his latest book, Uprising, Will Emerging Markets Shape or Shake the Global Economy, was published in the end of 2010. George. How did you get started in economics? Well, at the very beginning, I think I actually got into it by default. I actually got thrown out of an English class at school for excessive chatting, I think, and was forbidden from taking my A-level in English, so I had to pick another subject. And economics was kind of, I, I didn't go into it out of a passion or anything like that. It was just really by default. But to cut a long story short, I mean, I kind of, I liked it. I decided it was uh, something I'd like to study. I liked the way that it blended with other uh, social sciences like you know, history and sociology and so on. As a student, I kind of developed a very strong interest in what we used to call developing countries. So I kind of did some postgraduate work in that field, and that's how it all got going, really. I suppose that excessive chatting really stood to you, especially in the area that you're working and you do a lot of consultancy and you'd be appearing on TV and likes to CNBC and Bloomberg. How did you evolve as an economist? 
Well, I'd, I'd never really imagined I was going to go into the banking sector, to be honest. I always thought that I was probably going to stay in sort of either in the government sector, where I got my first job. I was actually in the economics branch at the Foreign Office at the time, or in some kind of consultancy, research consultancy. So banking definitely wasn't in my sights. But as luck or, you know, evolution has it, you know, it's kind of where I ended up. I went to Lloyds Bank and kind of spent a couple of years there and then just moved on through the banking sector. You know, I just found the, you know, the demands and the pressures and the, the, the requirement to try to, not necessarily to make good forecasts. I mean, that goes with the turf. I mean, everybody needs, you know, needs to do that. But actually to try to communicate and convey economic thinking to portfolio managers and pension funds and insurance companies. And later, you know, as they developed, you know, sovereign wealth funds and goodness knows what else. I mean, just institutional clients, actually, I found that kind of really interesting and, and very challenging. So that's kind of how it all got going. You mentioned a little bit about the growth of the industry. So how far back are we talking when you started out in the industry itself? Well, I, I started out in Lloyd's in the 1970s, early 1970s. And I think my first, well, I was going to say my first proper job, not really a proper job. I mean, the first job in the city as we know it today was in 1986 when I joined. Um, this is just about as Big Bang was happening in the United Kingdom. And I joined what was then a firm of guilt brokers called uh, Laurie Milbank. And uh, they were quickly taken over as part of Big Bang when American firms came to the UK and to London. And they were taken over by Chase. From then onwards, my career just took root in the what we would now call, you know, the traditional financial services institution, investment banking and so on. I joined Warburg's. Uh, soon after that. And then Warburg's was taken over by Swiss Bank Corporation. And then I had to go and find another job. And I joined UBS. And then UBS and Swiss Bank Corporation merged. And the people that fired me from Warburg's called me up and said, would you like to come and be chief economist at UBS? And so uh, that's kind of how it all happened. Wow. <laughs> that's quite ironic, especially when you eventually wrote a paper for UBS stating your concerns about the subprime crisis. But they didn't heed your advice yeah, I mean, that, that's now we're talking really about what I regard, you know, as a sort of pinnacle of my professional career, actually, was, you know, because actually people make forecasts all the time. But actually, the, the ones that really matter are the ones where you get, you know, the accuracy of timing almost down to a T. In a previous crisis, uh, the Asian crisis in 1997-1998, I first learned about the economist Hyman Minsky, who, you know, was actually for most, you know, university uh, postgraduate and undergraduate and postgraduate age education. I mean, he was a pretty obscure economist, actually. Not that he, he himself was obscure, but that actually he wasn't really kind of anybody's syllabus, unless you were doing, you know, more kind of advanced and sophisticated research. I kind of acquired a knowledge about Minsky, you know, in about 1997-1998 and read his book and other works. And as we were getting into uh, sort of 2005-2006, I was kind of listening to what certain people at the IMF and the Bank of International Settlements were kind of uh, forewarning about, you know, the dangers of leverage. And when I suddenly joined a few dots between something really esoteric that people used to call you know, subprime housing and even more esoteric issues like structured finance and some of the strange things that were going on in investment banks in 2006-2007, as I said, I kind of joined those dots and started writing about, you know, what I thought was coming, which was a min 
Kaminsky moment. Now, the phrase, actually, to be fair, was originally coined by a former colleague of mine, Paul McCulley, who was at PIMCO and left and then went back. But I kind of wrote about this Minsky moment in a series of research papers at UBS. I was a bit detached at the time because... I'd actually stepped away from my management job as a chief economist, and I was doing sort of mainly content and clients, and wrote a series of papers which the bank obviously paid no attention to, but no, no other bank did either. And in fact, in the early days, in two, early 2007, you know, many people were very kind of dismissive of this kind of doom and gloom, you know, warnings about financial catastrophe, but it came right in the end. And I, I don't say that with any kind of pleasure, but from a professional point of view, obviously the timing was perfect. How difficult is it to not work with the crowd? Because it must be extremely difficult if you're working on this yourself, trying to create your own forecasts and not to conform with a particular group and you come up with a paper like this that's quite dismissed. It must be very, very difficult and a lonely road. Uh, well, you know, I mean, I can only speak for banks uh, where I've had, obviously, most of my experience. It may be different in other other sectors. It's kind of strange. There's a very strong drive always to be non-consensus, right? I mean, the, you know, clients particularly, you know, particularly over the years, you know, institutional clients have become, you know, more sophisticated, better informed, they have access to better data and, you know, more information. And so if you don't actually have something to say that's different from the crowd, very often people will not show any interest in bringing you into to, to make a presentation or talk to you. Uh, so on the one hand, strong compulsion to be non-consensus. On the other hand, the banks themselves, of course, actually are very guilty, I think, of kind of a group think, right? I mean, nobody wants to go too far out on a limb, particularly if the interests of the bank or the financial institutions themselves are really something that you, you, know, you think is, is a problem. So, as I said, I think, you know, by virtue of the fact that I'd stepped away from my management position by 2007, I think it did give me a bit of extra leeway to sort of go out on a limb on things that were quite sensitive. Although I have to say, actually, since the great financial crisis happened, you know, nobody's getting too sort of hot under the collar about, you know, people making one. There are lots of lots of very, very, you know, prominent economists in the banks that actually, you know, do speak their mind. Although, as I said, I think there's a very strong group think presence, I think, where people do coalesce around, you know, kind of a narrow range of views and outcomes and so on. I had a previous guest, Professor Steve Keane from Kingston University, and he too had written a paper back, I suppose, maybe coinciding with your own, and mentioned that household debt to GDP had spiked in 2007, and he expressed his concerns too at that particular time. The Minsky moment, if we're experiencing hyperinflation, would that benefit those people who are in debt, or would that benefit the bank? Yeah, there's, there's nothing nothing terribly peculiar about or, or peculiar to kind of Minsky's work about inflation specifically. I, I mean, you know, the, the central piece of Minsky's kind of teaching really was about how leverage is endogenous to capitalism, basically, and to free market economies, and how therefore financial instability is an ever-present risk which never goes away. And if we think it's gone away, it's only because, you know, we're between those kind of moments of, of eruption. The next one, obviously, very difficult to say how far into the future it lies, but we never really get rid of it because we never really deal with the systemic causes of financial instability. 
Clearly, if in the current environment, if central banks were successful through their policies of, you know, zero interest rates and QE and so on, if they were successful in creating inflation, the problem of over-indebtedness, which, as you said, Professor Keenan has been quite prolific on, on the topic, then clearly, you know, that problem of indebtedness and of alleviating the kind of debt burden and kind of trying to move on, as it were, I mean, clearly, you know, would be alleviated very, very strongly. I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, sort of, you know, Brazilian kind of 1970s, 80s style of hyperinflation, but just, you know, stable and higher inflation. Obviously, you know, there's a risk, clearly a big risk, that if, if they were too successful and got inflation up to 20, 50, 100 percent, you know, you'd have a completely different round, a different kind of environment of instability. But it, it does kind of capture very well one of the sort of great issues of the day, which is the legacy of debt, which we're still grappling with in many countries, too much debt, and the difficulties of dealing with that debt, because we don't have inflation. In fact, in a lot of countries, particularly in Europe, of course, we have quite the opposite, which is either actual deflation or strong deflationary trends. We regularly get crisis, no matter what economy we have, or even century. You could blame the 2007 one on financial derivatives, as, and as you mentioned, our leverage. But I have a quote from you. The world changes, but human behavior is constant. How true is that? Because over the ages, if you look at economic history from tulip mania to Mississippi bubble, we're going to be encountering more bubbles and crashes and crises in the future, too. Yeah, I mean, I take the view, really, that exactly as, as that quote suggested, you know, that actually... We are, as, as individuals, you know, we don't really change that much. I mean, our, you know, we may think, and, and generations do think, new generations think that they're so much smarter than their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents and so on and so forth. And yet, you know, we do make the same mistakes and we do commit the same kind of errors and succumb to, you know, financial manias. I mean, just that very history, that brief history that you outlined, you know, going back to tulip mania, but you could go back, you know, before that as well. I mean, financial manias, they recur all the time. And, you know, we never seem to be able to stop them. And I don't think we ever will. I think we just basically think about credit and, you know, doing things with money and products that we think are sexy, interesting. And we do this still, you know, to this day and don't really have a strong feel for, you know, where all of these issues are going to end up and whether we might end up with or, or might kind of come across circumstances where we have some kind of shock, you know, economic shock or a political shock or something. And we find ourselves, you know, back in a situation where we have financial mania and, you know, speculative excess and, as you say, bubbles. Uh, we've got bubbles already or again today. Uh, different kind of bubbles than we had in 2005, 2007. But nonetheless, we have no idea really how these are going to be resolved. And in a book you've written, The Age of Aging, you envision a bigger crisis. The concern in The Age of Aging, which kind of had a subtitle about how demographics are changing the world economy. I mean, what I was concerned about really was this kind of ubiquitous and uh, unique phenomenon of aging societies and uh, you know this is not really about mum and dad or grandma and grandpa and you know how are we going to look after them in the future although that's an integral part of the topic uh, but it's really about the economic consequences of this kind of unique combination of weak or declining fertility and rising life expectancy thanks to you know better health and 
um, health care and all the things that are you know allowing us to have extended very very extended periods of retirement and old age so th- this has never happened before in human history and so my concern really was to kind of look at this and to look at some of the the economic and you know social political consequences and to make it kind of a, a kind of a pitch if you want to put it that way for an agenda i mean we need to have a policy agenda we need to have coping mechanisms to address the consequences of aging societies and it's a slow train right i mean we're starting to make some kind of progress in developing these coping mechanisms but it's still quite quite early days would you have any expressive concerns regarding the pension in the future because with the aging population in ireland and i'm sure it's the same in the uk and a lot of western economies there may not be a pension pool at the end. To me, it appears to be like a Ponzi scheme. Yes. Well, there's a little question in my mind that the promises that we have been made with regards to pensions, uh, but also, you know, health care benefits and so on, age-related commitments, if you want to put it that way, those promises are unaffordable. I mean, if you looked at, for example, the net present value of the costs of those promises under existing legislation, clearly it varies from country to country. There are some that are relatively worse off and some that are relatively better off, but it's all relative. Everybody will face an enormous bill. I mean, it, and it will range on the numbers that I've been working on between 150 and 550 percent of today's GDP. So good news about that is nobody has to make a checkout for that amount tomorrow. The bad news is it gives you a kind of a, a feel for how large those commitments are. And I suppose if I had to kind of encapsulate the problem in a nutshell, it's really about trying to redefine the rights and responsibilities of citizens and the state in an environment where these promises, as they stand, are are just not affordable and will drive us into, you know, more and more debt. As you said, or suggested, you know, the, the pension system is, you know, in effect, it's a kind of a Ponzi scheme because we're relying on fewer and, well, you know, fewer and fewer people of, rel- relatively speaking, of working age to commit, to contribute to a scheme which is paying out more and more to more and more retirees. So um, that's, that's really not going to end well unless we try and change the metrics there. Reading the title of your book and what it's about. I'm wondering, uh, should the Chinese Premier read this book? Because with their one-child policy, I'm sure there'll become a point in time with the Chinese demographics that they'll have problems like this too. Well, I mean, to give them their due, one of the things that they have done since the third plenum, which took place at the end of 2013, is they have relaxed the one-child policy. It has a lot of symbolism and significance in China, but I'm not sure that it's really the important factor behind China's rapid aging. Because, you know, there are lots of countries that don't have a one-child policy that have actually lower fertility than China does. There are lots of other aspects of it, you know, like gender imbalance is probably a much bigger issue or consequence of the one-child policy than low fertility as such. But you're right, and I do agree, you know, that China is one of the fast. it is probably the fastest aging country on the planet. Today, there are about 10 workers for every citizen aged over 65. And by 2040, 2045, admittedly, it's kind of a long way off, but not that far off. Those 10 workers will have shrunk to about 2.3 workers per citizen aged over 65. So the adjustment to aging in China, I think, is a formidable one. 
And of course, the mantra now kind of widely known about getting old before you get rich is aptly applied to China. Because obviously, in the West, for example, you know, we, we have income per head of between, you know, thirty and $50,000. We have quite sophisticated and advanced welfare schemes, which at least provide some of the infrastructure, even if they're creaking and ailing at the moment. I mean, they could be reformed. But of course, China doesn't have any of that. And it has income per head of probably, you know, no more than about seven or $8,000. It's a bigger issue, I think, for a country like China than it is for us. But it's, it's a big issue regardless. With the aging population, people living longer, there's always the concerns of the availability of food, like the way Thomas Malthus would have written about this in the late 18th century. But that didn't come to pass with the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, and so on. But would you think there are concerns there, or did Thomas Malthus get it wrong, or is there something in the future that we could kind of learn from this, or is this the Marxist thinking that the laborers may have the upper hand in terms of what Malthus would have opposed being the laborer, the working class would have been the poor, if that makes any sense? Yeah. I think it's because it wasn't just Malthus who obviously predicted that the end is nigh kind of thing. But of course, there, there have been others, you know, most recently, I suppose you could say, you know, with the Club of Rome report in 19, it was in, was in the 1970s that said, you know, that by 2000, you know, we're going to run out of this, that and the other. I mean, I suppose where the Malthusian view is wrong, in my view, is that it kind of takes no account of human ingenuity. I mean, if hadn't been for that, you know, and for our ability to adapt and address issues that are threatening to the human race and to humanity, you know, obviously, we, we probably we probably would have ended up the way that Malthus suggested. So there doesn't seem to be, you know, certainly any prospect of kind of a, a shortage of food. I mean, there are distributional problems, if that's not being too nerdy about it, about how the food gets or whether the food gets to the people that actually need it. But actually, in terms of is the world capable of producing enough to sustain itself? I mean, I think the answer to that is yes. And I don't really have any personally any fears for the future as to whether we might suffer on that account. I mean, obviously, we do have some new issues to worry about, like the effects of climate change on in terms of, you know, making the bits of the world wetter and other bits of the world drier and so on and so forth. And these could have an impact on food production, to be sure. And water shortages, you know, which is a, an increasingly big problem in certain parts of the world, in, um, in China, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa and elsewhere. So I think there are kind of issues which um, we're not confident uh, yet that we can address. But ultimately, if we need to address those things to survive, I'm optimistic that we probably will. I, I'm an optimist, really, on that, on that account. You know, I think that big problems like that, I think we, we have shown a capacity to be able to address, uh, not always in a timely way, but we do, and I, th I think we will. Picking up on what you mentioned beforehand about economists being somewhat under pressure to make forecasts, there tends to be a correlation that if population declines, your growth will slow. But mentioning what you actually said there as well, that humans have the ability to adapt. So we're replacing labor with robotics and so on. Could we see further growth, even though we might have a declining population? Well, now this addresses a very current and big issue, actually. And it's not going to go away anytime soon. So the first thing is, uh, I suppose, that in countries where population is declining, and you think usually about Japan, and then, you know, possibly uh, now in Germany and uh, Italy and so on, 
We know that this is one of the big issues behind the crunching down of potential growth rates around the world in, in many countries. And even where population isn't actually declining absolutely, if the working age population, normally defined as 15 to 64, if the working age population is stagnant or declining, then obviously, you know, that has a negative effect, other things being equal on growth. I do think it is a big issue. And I think that one of the responses to this, in a way, as you suggested, is this kind of wonders of new and particularly digital type technologies. But I think this is giving us something new to worry about, unfortunately. However however great the gadgets that we have in our pockets and so on are or on our desks, digital technologies are doing things to middle wage paying jobs with middle level skill attainment that have compounded many of the other issues that have affected us over recent years like globalization and the effects of the financial crisis and so on and so forth and they you know they've been captured very well by these two guys Brynjolfsson and McAfee who've written this uh, pretty interesting book called The Second Machine Age which is really about how the new technologies are basically displacing, not complementing, human endeavor. So, you know, if the first industrial revolution was about saving brawn, as we as we might put it, and actually giving us, you know, machines that we were able to master and, and increase productivity and output and so on. The second industrial revolution, this one that we're going through now, is about actually displacing us, not supplanting or, compl- or complementing us. And and I think that's a big issue. I mean, it's very difficult for us to say in, you know, 2015, this is where all the jobs are going to be in 2025. And this is what people will be doing. We have no idea what people will be doing in 10 or 15, 20 years time. Any more than 10, 20 years ago, if you asked people, you know, what an app designer, uh, you know, might be, they would probably look at you as though you were cuckoo. So we can't say actually how we will adapt to this. But what we do know is that we do have a big problem in this kind of transition of what do we do with people that are being robotic or automated, whose jobs are being automated out of existence. And we don't have well-developed coping mechanisms to deal with the outcrop of that. At some point, you know, we will have to rethink how we deal with educational attainment and on-the-job training and the kinds of things that we think people will need to do or be equipped to do in the future. But it is a big problem as we look around the kind of developed markets today, but also emerging countries too. I mean, many of them in Asia in particular have these problems as well. Just wondering, would we see a re-emergence of the Luddites? <laughs> there, yeah. there seems to be, there, I was just looking here, um, there's neo-Luddites yeah. that have emerged in the 1990s that are blaming a lot of new technologies on disasters and uh, replacement of labour. Yeah, I mean, I think, I suppose it's inevitable, but you can't... Um, You're always going to have... Can you? No. You, just, you just have to get on with it and uh, <laughs> cope with it, actually. People always have their views and some will express them more so than others. Do you have a favorite economist? We mentioned a number of them already, Minsky, Maltus. Yeah, I suppose uh, one of my gurus is J.K. Galbraith, actually. He wrote and was very prolific in, I suppose, in my formative years. And he's written some wonderful things. I mean, not just about, I mean, he's obviously well known and maybe best known for, you know, his work on the great crash of 29. But one of the books that he wrote that I found absolutely riveting just because of the brevity of the book and of the power of the language and of the message was uh, it's only about 90 or 95 pages. 
It's called A Short History of Financial Euphoria. I recommended this book in 2007, 2008 to just grillions of people just because I just felt it was very, very powerful. And just by the way, I mean, he also wrote a book many, many, well, well, two, two, two or three decades ago now called The Culture of Contentment, which was about the risk as he saw it of a society developed. This is a long time before Piketty. <laughs> about the as the risk as he saw it of society developing into kind of a very very kind of rich overclass as it were and a, a large and growing underclass and the tensions that would arise as a consequence of capitalism or deregulation which, which he thought might permit this to become a bigger problem which again was i think uh, pretty prescient so galbraith has always been one of my heroes i i, I like what he's is and you know it stands the test of time he's very 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 readable I'm very current as well, based on that book, Short History of Financial Euphoria, because, again, we lived through that also in 2007, up to that point. Yeah, I mean, you know, and one of the messages that Galbraith keeps says, and he has, you know, just wonderful ways of saying it with great irreverence, is how, you know, we always think that we're cleverer than we really are. And, you know, we dress it up in all sorts of fancy, dancy language and, you know, models and maths and so on and so forth. But actually, fundamentally, it's an act of self-deception, really. And we really need to understand better what we do and why we do it. Would you believe that Galbraith would have gone against Irvine Fisher's whole idea of having a mathematical economics? Or where would you personally stand in terms of your own school of economic thinking? Yeah, well, I was going to say, I, I don't know. I couldn't obviously speak for him. We, we could ask his son, uh, James Galbraith, who teaches, I think, at American University and is supposed to be quite close to the Syriza government in Greece, actually. But I personally think that and I have a lot of sympathy for the, the new teaching, which some academics are basically trying to inject into undergraduate economics, which teaches so that it's, it's not, I suppose, to dispense with mathematics altogether because obviously the maths is pretty important in terms of model building and trying to explain and, and predict things but actually is to make people also think that the answer to the world's economic problems is not always and and sometimes not even about maths but actually about understanding of you know financial stability and about political economy and about some of the aspects that basically undermine the once cherished view about economics being a science which of course we've learned it isn't your latest book, Uprising, Will Emerging Markets Shape or Shake the Global Economy? Would that have had some influences of Galbraith's book? Or if you'd like to elaborate a little on the book itself, how would you believe China is set to dominate the world system? I would say that the genesis of that book and of the, the work that I've done on the whole topic, you know, subsequently and, and up until this point, is really to take issue with the, it's probably much less strongly held view today than it was, let's say, three to four or five years ago. But it has been a strongly held view that China, along with India and Brazil and Russia and you know many other emerging countries, were changing the world economy in ways that would actually lead to their ascendancy. And if you want to kind of put it in a slightly more colourful way, that actually the world you know, the world history was basically going back or the world was going back to its history of sort of two, three thousand years ago when China was the biggest economy in the world and where the world economy, if there had been such a thing that we could have called a world economy, was dominated by the Middle Kingdom. There's been a lot of sometimes self-serving, not propaganda, but certainly views 
that all you had to do was just uh, look at the last 20 years, draw lines on a spreadsheet, and you'd get a picture of what the world was going to look like, dominated by China and other emerging countries. And I that was something that I always felt was rather uncomfortable as a kind of a view, not, not because I have a sort of kind of a visceral distaste to the outcome, but because I just thought the reasoning was always very suspect. And what I was trying to do was to, you know, and have been trying to sort of work on the idea that actually the reasons why we have this emerging markets boom, particularly in the 1990s and the 2000s, actually was quite special, that it was, you know, peculiar to an extraordinary period of globalization, which I think is now finished, or certainly much less potent than it was. And also due to very simple phenomenon of economic catching up, also because of globalization, but because of improved governance and a willingness on the part of many countries, not the least of which was China, to open up and to become part of the kind of the global system. That's kind of what the book is about. It's really about why did we have this kind of emerging market euphoria? And where is this going? Because I don't think, and I, I think I could probably say with some justification that certainly since 2011, 2012, that that euphoria has dissipated quite a lot and for very, very good reasons. And I think it's, you know, I'm not saying that all emerging markets will remain toast, but actually we've had serial downgrades in growth prospects in emerging countries. Many of them, Brazil and Russia, have certainly dropped out of the ring of optimism, shall we say. India has got a bit of a Modi bubble going on, which a lot of people hope will be validated. But China has many problems and is in the kind of the midst of a, a long-term secular economic downswing, I think, in terms of growth. And everywhere, including China, of course, people are focused now on reform. And we have to kind of decide whether reform is hope or hype. In many cases, it's, it's hype, I think. A lot of those acronyms, they seem to have been established at one particular point in time, and then the media jumps on it and plays it all out. First, it was the pigs, then it was the bricks. They tend to distract us from actually what's going on. You mentioned there the story isn't really developing in terms of Brazil, Russia and India and even China. That's a, that whole BRICS acronym is pretty much broken up and become redundant as such. What's going to happen, do you believe, to Europe with Syriza having won the general election in Greece? And you mentioned also that James Galbraith is working with Syriza, is that correct? Well, I think he's certainly published online material. I mean, certainly the, the impression I have, I don't really know this for a fact, but certainly impression I have is that he's close to some of their leaders. Yeah. I, you know, I think this is all incredibly sensitive stuff. And my own view is that I don't think that anybody wants to make a political decision in the next weeks that Greece should exit the euro area. I mean, I don't think that the new Greek government wants to do that. And whilst, you know, lots of people are very kind of critical about Germany and creditors in Europe, I think that they, whatever their private thinking on this matter, I think that they probably would, everybody would like to fudge it for a little while, I think. So whether they fudge it until May or June or later, I mean, remains to be seen. But my own view is I think that what we're dealing with here are fundamental differences, not just between Greece and Germany, but between Europe's debtor countries and creditor countries about what kind of monetary union can work in everybody's interests, but with the handicap that we don't have the political and fiscal integration, which normally precedes all successful 
monetary unions. So the design flaw, going back to the 80s and the 90s, was that that they didn't put political and fiscal union first and then build the monetary union on top, because that's normally the way it's done. Germany, the United States, United Kingdom, you know, Italy, are all monetary unions that were built in this way. So the problem, I think, in Europe is that the chances of doing or building a kind of political and fiscal integration now, I think, are much, much slimmer than they even were, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. And if you can't do that, then I think the chances of a viable monetary union with 19 countries, I'm reluctant to say this because I was always a great euro file, to be honest. But I think the chances of the integrity of this euro area as it is, I think uh, the chances of that surviving are very, very slim. It's pretty much a classic example of game theory between Germany and Greece also and the ECB. But there's a lot of things happening around Europe and, you know, with the Switzerland removing the Swiss franc peg with the euro, a lot of negative interest rates. Well, yeah, a lot of the phenomena that we see and that we've been sort of trying to digest even since the beginning of this year, as you say, like the bombshell from the Swiss National Bank, and QE and the euro area and, you know, three years late, but it's come finally. And obviously now the situation with Greece. I mean, these things are all kind of, If we had, I mean, hypothetically, if we had, if we could throw the time switch back to the great moderation where we had, you know, economic growth with nominal GDP, you know, rising year in, year out by about five or six percent, high levels of employment and benefits of new technologies and so on. I mean, of course, in that sort of an environment, we wouldn't really worry about the kind of stresses and strains. But of course, it is all hypothetical. And, and the reality is, we are trying to deal with a political problem, which is between creditors and debtors. And that is a behavioral issue, which is very, very difficult for both sides to change substantially. But we've also got a kind of very difficult economic environment, where the legacy of too much or creation of a lot of debt is being exacerbated by the fact that stable or declining prices are actually increasing the burden of debt. Hence, uh, the fact that despite you know everything that the euro area has done over the last three, four, five years, that the uh, the ratio of debt to GDP, except perhaps in Germany, actually is continuing to rise steadily year by year. And looks like it will continue to do so. So I'm not quite sure how we kind of resolve all of this. I mean, my confidence of the eurozone being able to resolve these economic problems as the Eurozone is currently constituted. My confidence actually is not that high anymore. I, I do think that what it is giving rise to is the likelihood of some kind of what we might call a discontinuity. So either the Eurozone is going to become a transfer union, which you know the Germans will resist tooth and nail, or else I think um, some countries will have to break free and determine their own destiny again. Usually I ask my guests their favorite books, but you pretty much answered that for me. So I'm going to ask you something a little different, if you don't mind. Of course. I'm just going to play something here for a moment. I played Led Zeppelin's Immigrant Song to George, but due to copyright restrictions, I had to withdraw this audio. You told me you played guitar. Yeah. Does that ring a bell? <laughs> Certainly does. Uh, unfortunately, I couldn't go to the reunion concert they did a couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah, I was in a was in a kind of a rock band for a few years. Uh, nowadays, of course, you know the the big program that we have on TV is the X Factor for new bands. In my day, it was a program called New Faces, and we did pretty well actually. We um, came well, you were on the program, were you? 
Yeah, we came second in our heat, and we went into a recording studio, and we cut some tracks, as they used to say, and one of them was released as a single, and I think it got to about number 49 or 50 in the top 100 or something like that. But it was a career that was unfortunately cut short, and um, the rest, as they say, is history. What was the name of your band? The band was called Prism, uh, with an M, not Prism, but Prism. So I'm guessing your influences as a player there, Led Zeppelin, but also, oh, who had Dark Side of the Moon? Uh, it was Pink Floyd, yeah. Would it be Pink Floyd as well? Yes, as well, yeah. That's... I guess we didn't have all the kit or the talent uh, that some of those bands had. Uh, but we had, uh, we had enthusiasm and we could make a bit of a noise too. You said it unfortunately ended. Was that just due to a band splitting up or...? Yeah. yeah, it did. Yeah. One went abroad. One moved to the north of England and uh, kind of just kind of disappeared. Two of us left and we, you know, we did a few kind of pubs and clubs as a duo for a little while, but they didn't really kind of work. <laughs> so not only were you kicked out of English for excessive chatting, your band broke up and you just en- ended up in economics. That's the word it happened. The, the dull and boring subject. <laughs> Well, it's certainly not been, uh, you know, it's certainly, it's certainly been pretty exciting in a different kind of way. But um, there, is a, there, is a, there is a frustrated rock star in here trying to get out sometimes. It's never too late. <laughs> Magnus, you even have the name as well. <laughs> George Metal Magnus. <laughs> I'll think about it. Uh, do you have any personal habits that helps you get things done, whether it's your research or maybe early morning rituals or whatever? Well, since I quit as a wage slave at UBS in 2012. I mean, I still have a kind of an association with the company, but I tend to, I do most of my kind of thinking and writing and working from home nowadays. So, so my hours, you know, I mean, sometimes I'll get up pretty early and read or write something. Um, sometimes I'll just do all sorts of other stuff during the day and, you know, come to it at sort of seven or eight o'clock at night. So I like the um, the flexibility of just not having to have a workplace to commute to and not having kind of hours that are pretty much set in stone. No, I don't have any particular kind of work habits, but that's kind of nice after a long career where, where it was prevalent. And was the realization that you were a wage slave came at that point or was this something that had run through your whole career? I always intended to leave work, as they say, in good time. In other words, you know, not to outstay my welcome or my kind of position there because there's, you know, particularly since the financial crisis in, in financial services, there's been you know, huge amounts of turnover and businesses are being shut down or you know, consolidated. Lots of new people, young people coming into the industry. I mean, it's a very young industry. You know, the average age of the people that worked in my building in the years before I left was about 28, 29. I wasn't. Um, <laughs> you know, I think, I think it was appropriate time kind of to move on. And, and I'm pretty glad I did that now. You might have time now to take out the plectrum. <laughs> well, uh, from where I'm sitting, I'm looking across at a Fender amp and a Stratocaster. These guys have been with me for some time, and I wow. put my hand to it every now and again. If I had a moment there to talk to you earlier on, I would have loved to have you played a tune for us or something, you know. So uh, I might say fat chance. <laughs> yeah, you could just say it's all out of tune or something. Is there one takeaway that you'd like to leave with our listeners, or maybe even tell us about an, an internet resource that you love? I'm not sure that I, I mean, just randomly. I mean, when you mentioned sort of internet source that I like, I mean, again, from a professional point of view, I read quite religiously a blog that's written by a professor who works at Beijing University. I think it's Beijing University or Michael Pettis. 
I've, I've known Michael for a little while, and he has written at great length about China, which is topic that you know occupies a lot of my thinking and a lot of my time. More recently, I would say in the last three or four years, he's also written a lot about global imbalances and about, again, things that we all kind of care about from the point of view of what's going on in Europe, for example. I go there quite a lot, see what he's writing and see what he's thinking. But other than that, you know, I suppose my kind of reading tastes are, research tastes are pretty eclectic. I, I have a lot of time for reading good history. Big fan of a historian called Margaret Macmillan. Also a chap called Adam Tooze, who just has a, a new book out called The Deluge, which is about kind of the emergence of American power in the interwar period. History, I find, uh, I spend a lot of time looking at and reading. I think it does give us perspective and context to try to see how contemporary issues in our, that we, we face in our lives today. It's a big uh, passion of mine, yeah. George, thank you so much for inspiring me today. Uh, thanks a lot. And thank you for joining me on Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and a person learned a lot from you. Share, <laughs> share with our listeners where they can find you. They can find me. My website is www.georgemagnus.com and you can find me on Twitter at, at georgemagnus1. Yeah, I think that's about it. You can find all the links to George on economicrockstar.com forward slash georgemagnus. George, you are truly an economic rockstar. Thanks a lot. Thank you for being so generous with your time. No problem at all. I'd love to know about you, the listener. Why not reach out to me on Facebook, like the Facebook page, Economic Rockstar, or follow me on Twitter at Econom underscore Rockstar, or head straight over to EconomicRockstar.com and sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. That way I can only serve you better by understanding who you are, what you'd love, and who you would love to be on the Economic Rockstar podcast in the future.